Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. This morning, we are continuing our series, Woven in Gospel. A number of years ago, I was still in high school, so it was quite a few years ago, um, at least three or four. Uh, I remember I decided I was going to start studying the Bible. I had been a Christian for, I don't know, about a year and a half, and I thought, I'm going to study the Bible for myself. And I got a commentary, and I got a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. You guys remember that? It's exhausting just looking at that concordance, right? Every word that was in the Bible in King James English was in that book. And so I was going to start studying the Bible, and I started going through the book of Mark. I don't know why I chose the book of Mark, probably because it was the shortest gospel and I was a little bit lazy and I figured I would do that. But I got to the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16 and I read in my commentary that verses 9 through the end of the chapter were not actually part of the original. And I was horrified. I thought, oh my gosh. What do you mean they're not part of the original? What does, what does that mean? I thought, I thought this was everything I needed to know. I thought the Bible was complete and perfect and everything was perfectly just like it is. And now I'm reading this from a commentary and I remember going to the pastor at that time and saying, I read this in my commentary. What does this mean? And they told me, you know, you gotta watch out for commentaries because some of them aren't anointed by God. And you might pick up something and you'll get some bad information. So it's best not to, you know, get into commentaries that are going to be uh, problematic. And I'll get you some that are good. And I thought, okay, 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 okay. But in the back of my head, there was this thing, chapter 16, verses 9 through the end, weren't in the original. It's like, why would they say that? Why would they just put that at the end? Why, why would someone write that? Was there any truth to that? And the last verse that is in the earliest manuscripts of Mark that we have. And this is a few different manuscripts that date back to the earliest point, ends in verse 8. And it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's the end? How can that be the end? And that sense of, oh my gosh, something's going on here is not yours alone or mine alone. Other scribes read this and they said, something's wrong here. And so there are at least now, I kind of found out, there are at least three different endings 
to this, the most popular that is in most of your Bibles. And you'll see the notes there if you have a more current translation, whether it's a new international English Standard Version, NRSV. Most of the newer translations will say the rest of this was not found in the earliest manuscripts. And so what is considered is some scribe read this and said, oh my gosh, this can't end here. And so they picked other portions from the other gospels. There's the revealing to Mary. There is the disciples on the road to Emmaus account. And then there is what we know as the great commission that kind of concludes this. And it says, okay, that feels nice and secure, but maybe the end of Mark's gospel is part of the brilliance of Mark's writing. You know, the end of John's gospel, he says, even if everything was written, there would not be enough books to contain all that Jesus said or had done. Maybe this trying to make it final and make it complete is trying to make us comfortable, but maybe Mark actually wrote the end of the gospel to help us understand that maybe it doesn't end It actually continues with the pen in your hand. That we, as he ends it, they left and were afraid. What do they do now? And the question then comes, what do we do now? And maybe Mark was actually alluding towards the end of his gospel earlier in his book. Mark's gospel is so well written that the other synoptics, Matthew and Luke, actually used Mark's gospel for reference. And so many things are similar because they are using Mark's gospel to try and connect dots so that they could tell the story. And Mark tells us in chapter 12, the story of of owner and a vineyard. And he says basically in this parable that, you know, this man owned a vineyard and he let some people take care of it and they took care of it. And then he sent one of his servants to go and get the money, collect it. And then they beat the servants and sent them back saying, we're not going to give you the money. We're taking this place. And so he sent another service and they did the same thing. They beat him and sent him back. And then the owner sent his son. And then the people who were tending the vineyard said, you know what, this is his heir. If we kill him, then we can take over. And so they killed the heir. And then in Mark 12, verse 9, it says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, the end of this parable is really the end of Mark's gospel. They kill Jesus, he rises again, and what can we expect to happen? What's going to happen next? God is going to take the vineyard, take it from those who run the temple, the priests, the religious leaders at that time, and he's going to give it to others, which is exactly where Mark's gospel ends. And all three gospels, including this parable, contain, all three, all three synoptic gospels contain this parable because it's defining. It's defining Jesus's life and ministry, specifically in relation to God and the religious system to the temple. And the end of the parable is really like the end of Mark's gospel. And of course, John was familiar 
not only with Mark's gospel, as we've been talking about, but familiar with this parable. But John doesn't include any parables, right? John doesn't even include the word parable in any of his writing in this gospel. But what he does do is give analogies of how Jesus is seen in these parables, right? Maybe he's offering us an analogy regarding the vineyard, but he's doing it in a different way. This is the vineyard taken from the priests, scribes, and elders, the vineyard that was given to others. And the idea of a vineyard, the true vine, is something that would have been familiar to these people at that time, where God is in charge. And now we see Jesus talking to the others to whom the vineyard has been given. And we're going to be in John chapter 15, where he's talking to the disciples. And this is who the landowner gives the vineyard to. Taking it away from those who were ruling it, the the temple rulers, those who had taken God hostage, so to speak. And Jesus is talking now to the disciples. And in John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withered. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now in John 15 and 16, we have Jesus's last teachings while he was on earth. Jesus and his disciples are somewhere between the upper room and the Mount of Olives as this is being told. And the idea of the vineyard, again, is a familiar image in Hebrew scripture. Isaiah painted a picture of Israel as God's vineyard whose fruit was disappointing because they weren't doing what they were supposed to, right? He says, God wants justice and righteousness, got bloodshed and a cry of oppression in Isaiah chapter five, he says. And we see the same thing Jesus saying when he cleansed the temple, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And we see that same cry that's taking place. The fruit of God that he looks for is love. It's the ultimate source of justice and righteousness. If we love, there is no need for law. Jesus said, on this rest, all the law and prophets, you love God, 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it rests on. And so the success of this vineyard depends on the deep and vital relationship with Jesus. And this is where I think it's very heartwarming to know that if Jesus is going to say one last thing to his followers, to those who are closest to him, this is what he says to them. These are the words that he gives to them that they are supposed to have a deep, vital, abiding relationship with him. It's not mechanical. It's not structured where you just do it because you have to do it. It's not a legal requirement. Well, you have to do this or else. But it's very relational. It's life flowing into life. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And and the key word in this analogy is abide. It means to remain. It means to stay. It means to dwell. And Jesus uses it repeatedly. For example, abide in me, my words in you, verse seven. Do I have those here? And then he says, abide in my love, verse 9. In the letter to Paul, one of his favorite expressions is in Christ, right? In some way, the follower of Jesus is is wrapped up in the person of Christ. This, This is more than just having information about. This is being with. This is having union with. This is having a partnership. This is a relationship that is dependent on relying in giving over to, right? Sheltered, nurtured, sustained, both intimate and constant. It's like the air that you breathe, the space that you live, there is supposed to be this depth of relationship with God that is something that connects to the soul of who we are. And and I tried to think of just different ways of explaining the abide, but I don't think I can reduce it to a formula or ingredients, right? I'm pretty sure you have to experience it to know it. It's like, again, explaining how do you ride a bike? You can explain it, but until you get on one and ride it, you don't know that terror of the beginning of almost falling over. And then you don't know the exhilaration of once it catches and you actually get to go, right? And you don't know the exhaustion of the dad or mom running behind the bike until they finally learn how it is, right? It's one of those things where you just have to experience to understand it. And the same thing is true with abiding in this relationship. I I can't explain it to you. I have to live it. You can't fully just cognitively understand it. You have to experience it. It's relational. This is gospel. The deeper, the living relationship with God that is now ours in Christ. There was a moment in this story that seems to be like a graduation of sorts. And it takes place in verse 15 when he says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is like a promotion from servants to friends. 
this moment is enveloped by a commandment. Before this, in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says after it, this, these things I command you so that you will love one another, right? So this idea of us being friends is preceded and followed by love. Love for one another, love for one another. If we had to identify a specific way to keep ourselves in Christ, to abiding in Christ, it would be love. The greatest commandment is love, right? Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. If you would ask the world what Christians are known for, would the answer be love? Most of the time when I've had conversation with people who are not part of the church or followers of Christ, and we ask them, what are Christians known for? It is judging. How did we get from there to what he's saying here? This chapter is a pivoting point, especially in verse 17, right? That we are to love one another. But then right after he says that, it kind of tips over. Because then he tells disciples, love is the key. Then the next verse, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. It's like, wait, what? I thought we were all to love one another. He goes, yeah, but if the world hates you, it hated me first. And so he jumps from love that holds them together to the hate that separates them from the world. And these two forces will be shaping their progress, love and hate. And those two forces are going to shape your progress. They're going to shape my progress. The love of God and abiding in it and the hate that the world has for things that are like God, like sacrifice, right? The world hates sacrifice. The world wants to envelop and get for itself. And here's Jesus giving away. And so he jumps from those two things, these two forces. But there's that promotion of friends. One of the things that we are seeing recurring in scripture is this importance, right? That Jesus wants to call us friends, that he doesn't want to have a relationship with us that is that of a servant that you just do what I tell you because you have to. He wants to have a relationship with us where we know what is going on behind the scenes. And this idea of closeness and friendship is something that's prominent in scripture. It's very important, right? In Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer to a brother than a brother. Friendship change. Friendships change based on transition, right? When I was younger and I lived in a certain place, I had my friends in high school. Why? Because we all went to the same school together. Then some of them moved to Colorado. Some of them moved to other places. Some of them moved to other cities. And then the friendships dispersed because we started moving in different places, right? I, I think what makes a good friend is someone who is there for the seasons of life. 
I think what makes a good friend is someone who will be able to tell you the truth, which is the next proverb there. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. See, you can mold clay with your hands, but to shape iron, you need heat, you need friction, you need that kind of stress to make it move. And I think that's true even with good friends. There has to be that kind of friction. And I think one of the reasons we have so few real friends is because we can be so thin-skinned that we're not willing to hear the truth. When someone tells us, you know what, you're being kind of emo right now. Like, what do you mean I'm being emo right now? But sometimes you have to hear the truth. And when we don't want to hear it, we push away and we say, okay, that wasn't the friend I needed, right? Jesus was a true friend to Peter. Yet he told him, get behind me, Satan. And he knew that Peter would also refuse to sit with the Gentiles and be rebuked by Paul, but he was still his friend, right? He would tell the disciples, are you so dull that you don't understand? But he was still their friend. You see, a friend isn't someone who who you just get along with. A friend is someone who you sharpen one another with, where you, you hammer things out, where you have disagreements and you struggle through those disagreements. I, I think it's so interesting that the way we have church today is we find a place that we agree with instead of a place that challenges us, instead of a place that we involve ourselves with and make life with and plant roots in and grow and participate in, we look for a place that we agree with. What would happen if you got married and that was the criteria? I have to agree with you. How long would that last? When you're a friend, you work through the struggle, through the problem, because you're more concerned about the person than the problem. Jesus is calling us friends, and he's still going to work in your life. And he's going to challenge your life, but he's doing it from a place where he's a person who cares. That's what a friend does. They care. If we can't feel truthful, then we'll only see people in their worst light. Right? We will only see them not in their best because we don't think they can change or are willing to grow. So we'll just kind of limit them to that space. Oh, you know him, he's like this. And then you pigeonhole him in that hole. Oh, her, she's a complainer. Have you told her she's a complainer? Because maybe she needs to know that she complains too much so that she can stop. But if you can't tell her, then you shouldn't tell anyone. When you're a friend, you work through those struggles. So many of us only see the problems and we don't see what God wants to do in the people. And don't you think Jesus knew that Peter would later deny him, yet he calls him his friend? What an example for us. So I call you my friend, you're going to deny me. 
but you're my friend. We're going to get through this, right? I mean, our marriages are a decision to live in a friendship for our entire life. And it comes with arguments. It comes with disagreements. It comes with struggling. It comes with having to be aware of someone else's needs and not just your own. And it's difficult. But it's good. It's good for me to have to change. It's good for me to have to grow in these areas. You know, there's a story Peter Rollins tells of a man who was deserted on an island for 20 years. And finally, a plane comes and they see him and they land and they rescue him and they come to the place and they go, oh my gosh, you're alive. We thought you were dead 20 years ago. We gave you up as being dead. And what have you done since you've been here? Can we see what's been happening? He goes, oh, sure, sure, come over here and let me show you my house. This is my house. I built this out of you know bamboo and these things and I did this. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. What about this over here? Oh, this is, uh, because I'm a very religious man, this is the church. I built. I go here every week and it's important for me to worship. So I built this church. Well, what about this building over here? Oh, no, no, that's not important. That building's not important. What do you mean that's not important? What is this building over here? He goes, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> you see, as soon as we encounter problems, we can cut and run. What does it mean known by our love if it doesn't mean struggle with each other? It's hard to struggle with people. It's hard to hurt with people. It's hard to see people go through things and not be able to help them. But I can't leave them. I can't quit. I can't stop. I think one of the problems we have today is the unwillingness for us as followers of Jesus to truly love one another, to struggle with one another, to to stick with one another through even the difficulties and to make things better instead of just finding a place that's more comfortable. And that's where Jude says, but you, beloved, building yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It doesn't just happen. You have to keep yourself there. He has called me his friend, and he's telling me that I have to love my neighbor as myself, and I have to keep myself there. Why does he tell us that? Because I keep wanting to go somewhere else. I have to keep myself here. Why? Because I want to go over here because this is a lot of work, loving them. Everyone's going, is he talking about me? (laughs) Maybe if I'm not thinking that, maybe I'm the one that needs a lot of work, right? Maybe I'm the one that's hard to love. Maybe I'm the one who's the difficult person. Maybe I've got those things and I'm blind to it and I will never be aware of it unless I have a friend who can tell me, who can say, hey, what about this? Maybe you need to deal with this. And it's hard to hear, but it's necessary. 
right? He goes on in chapter 16, Jesus' explanation for the purpose of this conversation. And several times, Jesus begins with the statement, I have said these things to you. In verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, right? They would suffer for their devotion to Jesus, so he is preparing them to accept the enduring suffering, Verse four, I have said these things that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you so that they wouldn't be taken by surprise or assume that they had failed their mission, right? That they would recognize that this is part of what they're supposed to be doing. They didn't need to be scared off before starting out, but the time had come for them to hear it and prepare themselves. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but cannot, you cannot bear them now. This is one of the central ideas behind John's whole gospel is when Jesus was crucified, the disciples' education was still unfinished. They still didn't understand. They were still trying to know what is God doing? Think of the two disciples that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus, right? Well, they're walking. Wasn't he supposed to be the Christ? Wasn't this supposed to happen? right? That was in Luke's gospel, and John is bringing the clarity of what is going on here. The Spirit would take over their education. In this way, John's gospel is more complete than the synoptics because he tells them that the Spirit is going to do this work. We see in verse 25, I have said these things to you in a figure of speech. This is also like a graduation or a promotion, Right and relates to their progress from servants to friends. They have advanced from figures to plain speech. I'm going to talk to you openly, not just in these parables. Right? Jesus had asked Nicodemus, I have told you earthly things you don't understand. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And Jesus had been gradually preparing the disciples to receive more. Paul, in the letter to Hebrews, refer to our ongoing education. It includes a maturing, drinking from milk to meat. Right? Verse 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, I can imagine the disciples saying, peace. You told us you're going away, that we're going to not be able to see you anymore, that the world will hate us and will be scattered. How are we supposed to find peace? In this, you're telling us now, you've told us these things so that we could have peace? See, they would not find peace in their circumstances or in their world. Rather, they were going to have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. They would have to keep returning to this abiding presence. You see, there isn't going to be peace found in these things. And oh, I would think we have learned this by now, but I still am learning. So many things I try to get to find peace. There are things in relationships that I try to find peace. There are things in my circumstances that I do to try and find peace. There are maybe drugs or alcohol you do to try and find peace. So many things we do to try and find peace. And there's only one place we find peace, and that's in the abiding of Jesus. And everything else, it seems like it's just ebbs and flows, and I need some stability. 
There's one more instance where Jesus says he has spoken to us, and it's in chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I don't really know what Jesus means by his joy. I can speculate, and it would be our maturing. But I think I have a glimpse and a taste and some memories of this communion, of this abiding in my life. But I haven't fully grown into it yet. And I don't think peace means the absence of turmoil because he says in the world you'll have tribulation. I don't think peace means the absence of questions or doubt. I don't think that that's what is required for peace. I think what's required for peace is a security in his presence. And I don't live there, but I have tasted that in the most difficult circumstances. I have tasted peace in the most heart-wrenching events. I have seen peace. And I can't explain it. I've just touched it and it's holy and it's special and it is present at the same time that there's the heartache at the same time that there is the confusion there can be the peace that comes from god we can expect the hardship we can expect also though that he is going to be present in the hardship And so Paul could write, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed in us or for this light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the hardships that we begin to feel overwhelmed, remember Jesus with his disciples and how he closed his teaching with them. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but it didn't end there. He said, take courage. I have overcome the world. There's supposed to be something in there that anchors us. There's supposed to be something in those words that we can hold on to because He is saying them present tense. He's not saying in the future when I overcome the world. He says, I have overcome the world now, right now. I've overcome it. Wait a second, Jesus, you're going to go to the cross. I know, I've overcome the world. You see this relationship we have? I've overcome the world and I'm asking you to be my friend. Be with me. What did that mean for them? Oh, they were going to go through persecution. They were going to go through same, some of them martyred. I have overcome the world. Maybe my idea of what the world is needs to change. Maybe my relationship with Jesus will open my eyes to see more than I see now, to understand more of what God is about than what I understand now. Maybe I need to have a different paradigm, one in which the presence of God and the relationship with Jesus is what I have that holds me while everything else changes. Because as I get older and as the people I love get older, I see more and more people getting sick. People die. 
I see people struggle with various hardships. I I see marriages go through turmoil. I I see people go through heartache. I I see all these things. And and I think this world, I have tribulation, but I'm supposed to take courage here because none of these things were a surprise to Jesus. There must be more that's going on than I understand. And maybe as time goes on, I will begin to understand more and more. I will begin to grow. And maybe in this friendship that I have with God, he will begin to reveal more in me. Because what I'm seeing happening, at least in my life, and as I get older, I see it more clearly than I did in that first time when I said, I'm going to study the Bible. Now when I study the Bible, I think, oh my gosh, there is so much I don't know. I had so much more ideas of what God was and how things worked back when I was in high school. I I had this confidence and I had, and it was good, but I look now and I think, oh gosh, there is so much more going on than I am aware of. I really need this friendship to help me through the waves. I really need this friendship to get me past the difficulties and the hardship. I really need this friendship to help make meaning of some of the things that I see happening in the lives of those that are near me. And I really need this friendship to give me an idea of what friendship looks like. Because it looks like Jesus. And in John's gospel, the last words of Jesus are, you're not a servant. You're a friend. And I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. When? How? I'm going to tell you by abiding. That's what we need to do. Not look so much for the answers, but look for the presence of God in our lives currently. Let's pray. Father, there is such promise in these words and there is such mystery. And I pray we would lean into that mystery, Lord, to find the promise. God, I pray for those who are struggling through tribulation, through difficulties here now, those who are physically going through difficulties. Lord, I I lift up Colleen, who's with us today, and pray that you would continue to touch and heal her body from the cancer, Lord. Those who are going through hardships in their home, through their work, with their family, Lord. The struggles in relationships that are causing turmoil internally, Lord. I pray that they would keep themselves in your love, that they would befriend you as you have befriended them, that now more than ever that there would be an abiding, finding themselves in you, finding identity in you, finding purpose and character in you, that we would be as good a friend to others as you have been to us. And in these friendships, Lord, we will find strength, support. Lord, we will be built up 
in our faith. May we not lose sight of what is important, and that is that we love one another. God, help us to understand what that means again as you have given us an example to that, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that you would speak even now into the hearts of those who are here. That we would taste and see that you are good, that we would lean into the presence that is available to everyone. We do love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. May you move from being a servant to a friend. May you recognize that in this world, though you have tribulation, that your friend has overcome the world. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Don't forget to pick up your kids. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.